Good morning. We are Grace and Abigail Walthall, and we are freshmen at Great Hearts and Covenant Partners at FPC. As we continue our study of Hebrews, our scripture lesson today comes from Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. Please follow along in your Bible or up on screens as we read the passage aloud. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical period, the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the one of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has been able to serve at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judea, descended from Judah, and in our connection with that tribe, Moses is nothing about the priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeliness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a, f a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made with a priest made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were made in number, uh, were in many number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make inter intercession from, for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did, not, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came the latter than the law, uh, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. Thank you to Abigail and Grace for reading scripture. I didn't realize it, but, well, I did realize it. We had twins at the first service, um, also freshmen in high school, read, and twins today. So... Um, there's something in the water with our twins in high school. But we're so grateful that you all were able to read for us. I also want to give thanks to our choir who sang just the most beautiful uh, choral piece right before this sermon. It is an opportunity, what a gift it is to come together and worship the Lord through beautiful music. So thank you to our music ministry. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Becky Pritchard. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's my privilege to dig into the word with you guys today. As you have heard, Bob Fuller and uh, Aaron and Irina Villastrigo are in Poland right now. And we got an update for them in the middle of the night, um, our time, and they are doing well. They um, arrived safely. They underlined and, underlined and bolded that they feel safe and secure there. 
Um, they've gotten to meet with several of our mission partners, and they wanted to thank the congregation for your constant prayers and support. Uh, we'll conti continue to keep him and the team in our prayers as God um, brings them back safely to us. So today, as you've heard, we're continuing in our study of the book of Hebrews in chapter 7. You've heard over and over again over the last several weeks about this mysterious Melchizedek, um, a man with a strange name. And we've been talking about how soon enough we'll get to more about him. Soon enough we'll, we'll dive deeper into him. Well, today is the day. So lucky you guys, we get to learn more about uh, King Melchizedek. But before we begin, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your love for us through Jesus Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It is in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. So in order to fully grasp the passage that we are looking at today, we have to talk a moment about who Melchizedek is. What do we know about him? At the beginning of chapter 7, the author of Hebrews describes Melchizedek as king of Salem and priest of God Most High. His name literally means king of righteousness. And Salem is from the root word, uh, the Hebrew word shalom, which we know to mean peace. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness and peace. To these Hebrew Christians, Melchizedek really is a big deal, sort of like the man behind the curtain, the great and mysterious Oz. They had heard of him, they'd heard of his interactions with Abram that we'll read from the book of Genesis, but he was quite the mystery, and he was a big deal. We see references to Melchizedek in two Old Testament passages, the one I just mentioned from Genesis 14, and also again in Psalm 110. But other than that, and now in Hebrews here, there's not much else we know about Melchizedek. There's really no history of him. Uh, he has no, there's no link to his family or his lineage. We don't know when he came on the scene and when he left. We don't know his timeline. So we don't know much about him. But the account in Genesis chapter 14 is an account of when Abram had just rescued his nephew Lot from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram, um, before his name was changed to Abraham, when God made the covenant with him, encounters Melchizedek. And Melchizedek brings him wine and bread and gives Abram a blessing in the name of God Most High. And then he disappears. The blessing, though, assured Abram that the victory over these kings he just defeated was certainly because of the power of God. That the victory, the good, the good things that had been happening for Abram was not because of Abram, Abram's might or power, but because of God's power and provision. Because of this blessing given to Abram from Melchizedek, Abram gives back to Melchizedek a tithe, one-tenth of everything. We often skim over these passages. Okay, okay, so Abram gets his, his nephew back and defeats the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and then he encounters this king, and he gives a blessing, and then he gives a tithe, and great. But this was really significant. This was a huge deal. We rush past it because we don't understand fully what this meant. This random priest showing up out of nowhere, and Abram giving a tithe to him. There was no requirement for him to give a tithe. 
There was no law telling him that he must tithe to this Melchizedek. But it's significant that this king of Salem showed up at this moment, blessing him in the name of God Most High, a different kind of priest. Unlike laws later on about the necessity of giving the Levitical priests a tithe, this Melchizedek was not required. And after this interchange, Melchizedek disappears. But in so doing, in Melchizedek giving a blessing to Abram, it's as if he has a position of superiority above Abram. And it all gets a little murky. Abraham is the one who receives the blessing and the promises from God. He is the father of our faith. He is now being blessed by Melchizedek, and he is giving him a tithe. Why would Abram give him a tithe? Why does Melchizedek disappear, and why does it matter? Well, we'll see today that even though we have a lot of unanswered questions, this is a powerful image for us as we study who Jesus Christ is. As I said, Scripture doesn't give us a lineage for Melchizedek. We don't know when he came and when he went. Whereas a lot of the Levitical priests, we knew exactly their lineage. We knew exactly who they were, and their lineage was very clear. So why is Melchizedek important? So we fast forward to our passage today, and we see Melchizedek is compared to Christ. Melchizedek is not Jesus. He's a regular human being, a regular human king, who is not sinless, and he is not eternal. Yet, he illustrates a foreshadowing of Christ. We're looking ahead to the great priest who is to come, a different kind of high priest than the Hebrews are used to. Jesus is that high priest, the true king of righteousness, the true prince of peace. Melchizedek represents the idea of this different kind of priest and is comparable to Jesus in certain ways, but he is not Jesus. But this is why the author of Hebrews brings him up. Remember, all throughout Hebrews, we see a comparison running between Jesus and the prophets, Jesus and Moses, Jesus and the angels. Every time Jesus wins out, the result of the comparison is that Jesus is superior. Phew, we know that to be true. But here we see Jesus compared both to the Levitical priests of old and also to Melchizedek, this great high priest. And in verse 11, our scripture begins by saying that if perfection was able to be attained through the Levitical priesthood, then we would have no need for another priest. So why do we have another priest? If the Levitical priesthood was perfect, if the old law made everything right, then why would we have need for a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Well, you and I both know that the Levitical priests were not perfect. They were sinful people, like you and me, and they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins in addition to offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because of their sinfulness and ours. They also did not live forever. They died, and what happens when a priest dies? Their priesthood ends. It is no longer. It does not continue, passed on to the next priest in line. They were not eternal. 
Perfection could not be attained through the priests or through the old law. See, the people of Israel were constantly breaking the old law. They were sinful and broken. They were distracted and selfish. Does this sound familiar to anyone? We are too. God put in place this old law given in this system, and people failed the system. But these people had built their lives on this old system. The old law, the old priests, but it could not bring them salvation from their sins. So there was a need for a new kind of priest, something different, someone totally different. But let's not forget, the deal with the old law is that you could not be a priest, you could not serve at the altar unless you were a Levite. You had to be born in the lineage of Levi. So the author of Hebrews says in verse 12 that if this priest is going to be someone new, someone not from the line of Aaron or Levi, then the law would therefore have to change. It's like a domino effect. If you've read the book, if you give a mouse a cookie, if you'll remember, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's probably going to want a glass of milk. And if you give him the glass of milk, then he's probably going to ask for a straw. One thing leads to another, leads to another. One change requires another change. Or it's like if you paint your walls in your home. A nice fresh coat of paint looks so gleaming and beautiful. And when you get done, you look down at your carpets and you say, now we need new carpets. And then you change your carpets and then you're like, ah, now I need new furniture. And then you change your furniture and you get to the point where you need new kids. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean that really, but right? I mean, it's like one thing leads to another, leads to another, and all of a sudden we're back or, you know, we've changed it all. This is a new priest. If there's going to be a new priest from a different line, and it goes against the law, then the law is going to have to change. The law no longer fits with who the high priest, this new high priest is. So this kind of thing is really difficult for me. So those of you who know me well know that I am a big time rule follower. I love rules. It tells me exactly what I need to do. I love that things are black and white. It shows me, you know, yes or no, I have to do this or that. It's very easy to follow, and I know how to gain success by following rules. This is very challenging for me because we can't, in my opinion, just change the rules, right? If the rules are set in place and there was a reason to put them in place, and we must follow them. I don't give a lot of flexibility when it comes to these rules, just changing. Rules are fun, right? <laughs> Some of us like to bend rules more or break them, but I value rules. Why do we have them in the first place? It must be a very, very, very good reason for us to change the law. What is the purpose here? In this case, there was a very, very, very good reason. Since the old way clearly did not work, a change needed to happen. And that reason was that salvation was not possible through the old law. We needed Jesus. Jesus was different than everyone. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Our world had never before and never has since seen anyone like Jesus. So the law changed because of Jesus. 
We needed salvation, and Jesus was the answer. So even for me, a strict rule follower, I see the reason for this change. All of this was part of God's perfect plan. As we see, the author of Hebrews constantly refers back to the Old Testament. We see that Jesus is foreshadowed there, and we read about him in the New Testament, and we know that God's plan is perfect from the beginning of time. He knew that we as humans would mess things up. The plan that God had for our salvation went beyond the law established with the Israelites. It was bigger than that. Jesus belonged to a totally different tribe. He was in the line of Judah and not in the line of Levi. So technically, according to this old law, he could not be priest. But in God's plan, he's the great high priest and the law needed to be fulfilled. In verses 15 and 16, we begin to see the comparison of Jesus and Melchizedek. That if the great high priest will be from another tribe, the tribe of Judah, and that that priest comes not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, we see in a high priest who will be the one who cannot die. A high priest who will live forever, a high priest who is eternal. This is new. The author compares Jesus to Melchizedek in this way, not because Melchizedek is eternal, but in the Torah, as the Hebrew Christians knew it, they knew that Melchizedek, his lineage was not there, his lifespan was not there. So maybe they thought, oh, maybe he is eternal. Maybe he's more like Jesus in that way. We know that he wasn't, that that was just left out of the scripture. But Jesus is the only eternal, fully human, and fully divine person. But we see in the illustration of Melchizedek this sort of comparison, this looking ahead to a different kind of priest, this looking ahead to a priest that was not a Levite, this looking ahead to a new line, someone who would be superior to Abraham, someone who would live forever. Verse 17 goes on to quote, Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, again foreshadowing the coming of this new priest, King Jesus. This Davidic king is to be after the order of Melchizedek, a different kind of priest and king, one who will last forever. Sworn by an oath by the Lord, guaranteed by Jesus. And the Lord promised not to change his mind. This is the king. This is the priest for you, once and for all. This is my favorite part. Verses 18 and 19 go on to say that the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. What? The former regulation, the one you mean that we've been following our entire lives? You mean the one that we've based all of our religion on completely from beginning to end is weak and useless? For the law made nothing perfect, but a better hope was introduced by which we draw near to God. This is a huge statement. All of which you've known is weak and useless. But guess what? There is a better hope. And guess what? Through that better hope, you will be able to draw near to God for the first time ever in a way that none of your ancestors knew how to get to God. Because before, you had to work through a priest to get to God. Now, 
with this new high priest, you have direct access to intimate relationship with the Lord. The old is weak and useless. But they're not just out of luck. It's not like, oh, the old is weak and useless, so sorry, good luck with the rest of your lives. There is something else instead. This better hope is introduced. The old way couldn't make anything perfect, but the new way offers this better hope. What is that saying? That if you're going to criticize something, you need to offer an alternative? Well, there's an alternative right here and a better one, one that will be so much longer lasting than the way that they had been living their lives before. This is good news, that through Christ we have a better hope. Through this new high priest, we can all draw near to God, not just the priests, but all of us. This is what people for generations had longed for, to be near to God. We talked about this assurance of hope last week, about an unchanging God, a certain God in a world of uncertainty. When our lives are hard and dark and messy and scary and miserable, we have hope in a God who does not change. We have a better hope in a Christ who has sacrificed himself so that we might have life and hope beyond this world. What would we be doing right now if we did not have that hope? Imagine the angst and anxiety. We already feel it, but with Jesus, we know that there's more. Full assurance of hope. God's promise to us is revealed in Jesus Christ, and we are able to draw near to God through Christ. The old law and the old priesthood could not accomplish the job at hand. They could not atone for the sins of all. But this new covenant, this new great high priest, Jesus was able to accomplish it all. He's perfect. He's endless. And through his suffering and death on the cross, through his once and for all sacrifice, we can draw near to God. We are free. This is life-changing news for the Hebrew Christians. Remember, they're being persecuted. They're saying, they're looking up, looking around going, okay, wait, this is kind of hard. You told me to follow Christ and now I'm getting persecuted for it? Not thinking so. So the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is saying, wait, wait, there's a better hope. The old is, is old and weak and useless, but focus on Jesus. A better way to encounter God a better hope. But what if I liked the old law? What if I grew up on the old law? What if that's what I'm used to? What if that's what my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents followed? What if that's all I know? What if I know no other way to encounter God but by following the laws? This would be me. I'd be sitting there going, oh, Okay, so you offer this better hope, you say it's Jesus, but uh, the old just seems to make sense. It's more comfortable for me, and it's more familiar. It's something that I know, and so I think I'll just kind of stick with that. How often do we do that? When we're challenged to change and think differently about something, and we're going, no, I like the old. It feels better to me. What if we don't trust this new law, this new covenant? But the Hebrew Christians needed a reminder of hope. They might have wanted to go back to the familiarity of what they knew, but it wasn't working. They were not able 
to have freedom and salvation through following the old laws. They had to look ahead. How many of us look back to what we knew and sort of reminisce about it in a very beautiful, flowery way? I, my mom always reminds me of this. I'll say stuff like, oh, I just wish that I could be in college again. It was so much easier. I didn't have to take your kids and wake up early and da da da. And she'd be like, ah, oh, you know what? Actually, remember calling me every Sunday afternoon crying because you had to write a paper and you didn't want to do it? And all of those things that I complained about back then, oh, you don't remember those? Let me remind you. Right? I mean, we are a people that like to complain. We love to look back and think it was so much better back then, when in reality, it probably wasn't. We just forget. We sort of have amnesia to the bad stuff. Just like the Israelites, when they've been saved from slavery out of Egypt, and the first thing they do is grumble in the wilderness. I'm hungry. I want to go back to slavery. It was so much better in Egypt. We are so much like that. Even these Hebrew Christians, this is hard. I'm being persecuted. I don't know how to follow this Jesus. This doesn't make sense to what I'm used to. Maybe I want to go back to the old. We are so human, aren't we? Being offered a better hope, a better way to live, a freedom in Jesus Christ. A freedom by this new high priest. So, if this law was given, by Mo, given uh, to Moses by God for his people, is it useless? I mean, is it totally done? Well, we must remember that it was not purposeless. And Paul says in Galatians 3 that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. The law is not opposed to the promises of God, but was put there to lead us to Christ all part of God's plan. The, the law is not null and void. It's not totally gone forever and not unnecessary. Jesus came not to overthrow the law, but to fulfill the law. Now that Christ has come, we experience God's promise in a new way, a way full of grace and forgiveness. Jesus intercedes for us on our behalf, as Harvey read earlier, as you all read in the confession today. Jesus intercedes on our behalf as our great high priest so that we are saved from death. Jesus sacrificed himself one time so that we might have life forever. So uh, the Hebrew, author of Hebrews goes on to explain sort of the differences between Jesus as high priest and the old Levitical priests. Unlike those other priests, when they die, their priesthood is over. But we know Jesus, Jesus is not dead. Jesus lives. On Easter, in just a few short weeks, we celebrate, we gather, we celebrate the resurrection that Jesus did not stay dead. And as Easter people, we get to celebrate that every single day. We worship a God who lives forever. And in verse 25, the author of Hebrews says, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus' life on earth, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave saves us from our sins. He is our intercessor. He petitions God on our behalf. He takes the blame of our sins so that we might be forgiven. And through his work, we're not only saved once, we are continually saved, made holy through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26 says that 
He is the one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He is not like us. He is not full of sin. He is a perfect human whose death paid the penalty for our sin. He doesn't have to sacrifice day after day after day, just the one time. Jesus Christ is not weak. Jesus Christ is not useless. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. And God's Son will live forever and ever. Friends, what a gift we have in Jesus. Truly the perfect high priest, one that will reign forever, that will intercede on our behalf, that who, was sat, who sacrificed himself for us so that we might draw near to God. Do you want to draw near to God? Oh, I know I do. And Jesus gives us that opportunity by forgiving us of our sins, by allowing us to draw near to the God who made us, who redeemed us, who sustains us, the God who knows us better than anybody in this world, the God who loves us more than we could ever be loved by a human being. God knows you. God knows your future. God has sent Jesus for you. Do you want to draw near to God? Jesus makes that possible. God's promises are real and true, and we can trust in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, for the work that he did on the cross. We thank you for your word of scripture that reminds us of your goodness, of your plan, that you had a better hope ready for us despite our sin. We thank you that you walk with us as we learn and grow, that you challenge us daily, that you nourish us with your spirit, and that you remind us that you're calling. You're calling us to draw near to you, and you've provided a way for us to do that through Jesus Christ. Let us continue to glorify him. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.